In this episode, we interview Lieutenant Colonel James Gutzman on space law and the new U.S. Space Force, which became an independent military branch in December of 2019. We explore the historical development of space law, the current space legal regime, private enterprise in space, and the challenges and opportunities in this rapidly evolving space domain. Here are a few clips from today's interview. We're challenged with the task of applying these laws to all of these new technologies that that are kind of proliferating in the space domain. How are we going to defend our national security space infrastructure when these these companies are, are putting up hundreds or thousands of satellites? Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, I'm very excited for our show today. We're going to discuss a cutting-edge topic and one that most of you are very interested in learning more about, the new U.S. Space Force. Within today's discussion, we'll explore the origins and current state of space law and the law of war in space. Our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel James Gutzman, is a space law subject matter expert and currently is the Chief of Space Law, U.S. Space Command, and U.S. Space Force at Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado. Sir, thank you for uh, coming on today to talk to us. Great. My pleasure. Really excited to do this. Lieutenant Colonel Gutzman enlisted in the Air Force in 1993 as a graduate of basic military training. He served nine years as a satellite and wideband maintenance craftsman in Guam, Peru, Honduras, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. He completed officer training school and commissioned in 2002. From there, he worked as a space operations officer in the California Air National Guard for eight years. Upon completion of law school, he transitioned back into the active duty Air Force as a direct appointee, where he's held positions at the base legal office at McConnell Air Force Base, Kansas. He's been a deputy staff judge advocate at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson in Alaska, a staff judge advocate at Grissom Air Reserve Base in Indiana, and obtained an LLM in space law at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And in 2017, was assigned to the Air Force Space Command at Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado, where he is now the Chief of Space Law, U.S. Space Command, and U.S. Space Force. Sir, uh, to get started, could you talk a little bit more about what you do in your current position? So I'm part of a team of attorneys that does the space, international, and operational law for both U.S. Space Command and U.S. Space Force. So on on the space side, we do a lot. Of, we have a lot of interaction with our our commercial partners. So you you probably know that SpaceX and Blue Origin, th- those companies, when they launch, they're they're primarily launching from Air Force installations, and we'll review and uh, do the, do the legal analysis for some of those commercial uh, space operations support agreements for those companies. On the international side, the U.S. Space Force has a couple of Space Force-led international sites. So if you think of like Thule Air Base in Greenland or Ascension Island in the South Atlantic, each of those sites might have anywhere from 30 to 100 international agreements that govern what the United States Department of Defense can do in those areas. 
And we do the legal reviews for uh, a lot of those implementing arrangements and some of those agreements. And we're also the repository for those agreements. And then on the operational law side, that's that's really kind of the lion's share of, of what we do. That's the the law of war in the space domain and, and kind of what constitutes a hostile act in space, what constitutes a hostile intent, what is a use of force in space, and when can you use force in self-defense. That's, that's kind of the, the bread and butter of what we do. What are some, if you could perhaps um, offer a few um, maybe issues that you've recently had to face that you're allowed to talk about that you're kind of dealing with in the space domain? Those run the gamut between the space international and operational law uh, portfolios. Uh, we were working on a what's called a hosted payload. So sometimes companies or governments will have a satellite bus that uh, they have some extra space on or that um, they want to offer to some partners uh, to, put, to put on their satellites and then they'll launch it. Um, there was – so uh, Japan has recently uh, – asked us about their their QZSS, the uh, quasi-Zenith satellite system. Their, their QZSS satellite, they were saying, hey, can we put uh, – does the United States want to put a hosted payload on that? And there were some legal issues around that that we had to write an opinion on. On the operational law side, our team is, is part of uh, CSPO, the Combined Space Policy Organization. We have an attorney who is on the, the uh, legal and policy um, working group. And she is kind of working on space policy, what constitutes norms in space and things like that. Those, those are some, some of the big issues that, um, that we're working on right now. How did you first get interested in the space domain? Oh, that's, that goes back a long way. So um, when, I, when I first enlisted, I, uh, I was working as a SATCOM maintenance troop, so kind of the ground stations that uh, talked to satellites, and uh, it was the old combat communications construct that we had in the Air Force where we'd go out to the middle of a field and set up satellite dishes, and we'd have to kind of find the satellite and ma- make sure that our big 20-foot dish could could connect with uh, uh, another 20-foot dish that was a few hundred miles away and uh, pass whatever kind of data the command wanted to pass over it. And that's when I really kind of first learned about electronics and was began to become interested. And then uh, when I finished college, I was going to go teach high school. And actually, I did for Los Angeles Unified for a, num- a number of years. But while I was a teacher, California uh, was getting into the, the space game. And so uh, they had a, a unit called the 148th Space Operations Squadron that they were setting up and they were commissioning space officers. And I really was interested in, in that area. So I went uh, through the Air Force School Officer Space Prerequisite Training and then initial qualification training for the Milstar Satellite Constellation and then uh, upgrade qualification training. And then I, I, I flew those satellites for a number of years and really enjoyed it. Uh, then when I came back active duty as, a, as, a, as an attorney, we have an opportunity at kind of the six to ten year mark in our careers to go get a to kind of specialize in a certain area of law and the air and space law program was available up up at McGill so I applied for that because uh, of my space background and I was really kind of interested in getting back into space and I was accepted into the program and and, uh, spent a year up in Montreal and then uh, have been very happy back here and in Colorado to be able to uh, work the space issues and 
the space domain and, and kind of get back with, with uh, some of the space folks that, uh, that I knew when I was younger. I presume that you've seen quite an advancement in technology since your, your early days when you were enlisted uh, working as a satellite and wideband maintenance craftsman uh, in various parts of the world to where we are today, where we're right at 4, four and 5G. Yeah, it, it's really a uh, stark transition. And, and one of the, the challenges we have in our, in our current job is the, the binding law hasn't changed. So, so uh, the, the, the last treaty that the U.S. is a part of was – was uh, ratified in 1975. So uh, the the job I did back in the early 90s, where we we set up those satellite dishes, we had we had a 250 person squadron. That a, a cell phone is infinitely more powerful than what we could provide back th- then with uh, 250 guys. So um, the change in the technology and the and the change in the capabilities are are drastic. But we're still applying the same same law to present day technologies, and, and that presents some challenges, uh, particularly in the kind of commercial sector where, where things are happening that just weren't in, envisioned in the '60s and '70s when these treaties were being negotiated and ratified. Um, so, kind of with that, uh, what are uh, the main laws, uh, treaties, and/or regulations that govern space law? So the biggest one is the Outer Space Treaty, uh, 1967 Outer Space Treaty. It sets down some of the almost now customary international law uh, tenets of, of what we can and can't do in space. It, it sets out the principle of freedom to use and explore so that it, any state that can kind of get to space, you can use it. Uh, it sets out the principle of non-appropriation, meaning – Hey, you can use it, but you can't claim it from your own. There are no sovereign claims on the moon or celestial bodies. You can't say, hey, this part of the moon that the United States landed on is United States territory. And, and likewise, in, in the orbital regimes, you can't say, hey, th- these are United States orbits or these are Russian orbits or Chinese orbits. It's, it's uh, very clear that you can't appropriate it. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty also set out that general international law applies, and that's quite important for the the job we we do now so of course in general international law of course is the un charter uh which is is big in in international law international humanitarian law the law of war uh whatever you want to call it article 24 in the un charter is a prohibition on the threat or use of force and that's domain agnostic it's a prohibition on the threat or use of force in the land sea air and space domains Likewise, Article 51 of the UN Charter uh, is the right to use force in self-defense, and it, it's the right to use force to, in self-defense in all domains, including the space domain. So that's really where we get a lot of the uh, application. And, and so to move back, Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty uh, says, hey, general international law and the UN Charter apply to the space domain. And then – Another big tenet, Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty, is uh, a prohibition on uh, uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in space. There's kind of this misconception out there that you can't put uh, any weapons in space. And that's really uh, certainly not in black letter law. Uh, it's, it's just a prohibition on nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction. And then there's an additional prohibition. You can't really put – you can't put any weapons on uh, the moon or celestial bodies. So those are the kind of the big tenets from the 
1967 Outer Space Treaty. Uh, there were a number of follow-on treaties, another another four agreements and conventions. So there's a 1968 Rescue and Return Agreement, 1972 uh, Liability Convention, 1975 Registration Convention, and then there's the 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 Moon Treaty from 1979. But the United States is not not a part of that, and we do not consider that that treaty to be binding. So the last functional treaty that that we have that I mentioned earlier is the 1975 registration convention and now um, we're challenged with the task of applying these laws to all of these new technologies that that are kind of proliferating in the space domain could you talk a little bit too about maybe the impetus to how that first treaty the 1967 outer space treaty was signed I, we talked uh, previously and you mentioned uh, the story on on Sputnik right Sputnik 1 that was launched by the Russians back in October of 1957, and then shortly thereafter, the United States um, launches their their satellite. And you said that there was some in, an interesting interplay between the two nations at that time on how they kind of viewed uh, this domain. In 1957, when Sputnik was was launched, sovereign air law was well established. So if Sputnik had had flown. Uh, at an altitude where where aircraft fly and went over the United States, that would have been a clear violation of United States sovereignty. And now now they're sending a spacecraft still over the sovereign territory of the United States. And the United States could have lodged some type of diplomatic objection and saying, "Hey, this is an equal violation of of our sovereignty," but but they didn't. Most certainly because the United States was intending to launch their own satellites, and, uh, and we did in January of 58, just a few months after Sputnik. And that transited over uh, the Soviet Union, and the Soviets also did not lodge any diplomatic objection, certainly because uh, they, they, they had already flown a satellite over U.S. Uh, so- sovereign territory. And that really got us uh, to the principle of, of Article 1 of – the Outer Space Treaty of freedom to use and explore. There were, there were only two spacefaring nations at the time, and both of them had acted in such a way that ma- made it seem that they believed, and, and we did believe, that you could, you could fly a satellite over a, a foreign state and not violate their sovereignty. And that is now considered a, a principle of customary international law, Codified as Article One of the Outer Space Treaty, and, and all states, uh, all states that I've I've read or um, seen act uh, agree with that premise. You mentioned how we haven't signed a, a main uh, treaty in, in decades. What challenges has that created? Laws that are that are based uh, from the sixties and seventies to technology of the twenty first century. Yeah, there there are a couple of. Um, Poignant examples uh, just to that. So I, I didn't mention Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, and this is rather unique in international law. Article 6 functionally states that uh, states or countries are responsible for their non-state actors. So the United States is responsible for SpaceX's actions in, in space, and likewise UK for InMarsat or in uh, and, and the United States for Intelsat. Well, uh, in 1967, and that that article is really a compromise between the Soviet. If you think about the, the the systems that were set up at the time, the Soviets at the time did not want private companies to be able to go into space. They thought, hey, only states should be able to do it. But the United States, with our uh, 
capitalist economic system was was looking forward to trying to encourage private investment into space. So the compromise was, okay, companies can go into space, but states are going to be responsible for their actions. And and uh, what companies do are going to be attributed to, to their space or their state sponsors. Well, in 1967, there was kind of this vague notion of what these companies might look like. Well, now we have all of these international conglomerates that kind of move back and forth. You know, they'll be bought by uh, other companies that might be registered in another state. And so a, a good example of that is uh, there's a, there was a remote sensing company, United States remote sensing company, that uh, was called uh, DigiGlobe. Digital Globe and uh, a remote, remote sensing satellites take pictures of the Earth. And it was commercially the, the exquisite capability uh, internationally. And so it had all of its licenses in the United States. And all, all of those licenses were subject to uh, United States requirements. Well, in 2016, McDonald Detweiler & Associates, MDA is a Canadian company that um, was running a Canadian remote sensing satellite constellation. It was two satellites at the time, RadarSat. And MDA bought DigiGlobe. So, so – the the question is, well, what happens now? Who's going to be responsible internationally for those DigiGlobe satellites that are registered and licensed in the United States now that it's a Canadian company that is directing and owning what these satellites are going to do? Um, and and I, sh I certainly had no idea how, how it was going to play out. They set up a new company um, and uh, incorporated it in Delaware, and uh, it's called Maxar now. And so the the U.S. licenses are still subject to U.S. restrictions and controls, and the Canadian licenses are subject to Canadian uh, restrictions and controls. But it was it's just a kind of a challenging issue that just wasn't considered in in the '60s, but now is going to happen uh, more frequently as we go forward. I'm also aware of, of kind of a number of different issues in space law uh, that I've seen kind of pass through my desk working at the Prussian Outreach Division where we get, we get a lot of publication um, submissions. And one of those um, had to deal with, with space debris, uh, which, uh, you know, that your average listener might go, well, space debris, I mean, what's what's the big deal? But um, when you actually get into it, it looks to be quite a, a, a very big deal. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? There's some, some, some legal challenges. So So the problem with with debris is um, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the, for these orbits. If if one of these satellites is hit with a just a tiny bit of debris, it can do catastrophic damage. So some of these uh, the the legal issue is is coming forward where some of these companies are are looking to go up and remove remove some some of the debris. Well, the the challenge is. Um, that states have maintained jurisdiction and control of their space objects ad infinitum. And that comes under Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty. So, so that if, say, the United States has a defunct satellite with, with some, some type of uh, nuclear power on it and it's just junk up there and a company wants to go up and, and – uh, remove that junk or send it into a, a different orbit so it's not in in a commercially valuable orbit. Uh, 
it's still United United States still has jurisdiction and control. Likewise for the for the Soviets or the Chinese or for anybody. So it's uh, a challenge to go out and say, okay, we're gonna just clean up this orbital regime, but you've got 15 different states with debris in there that may have a vested interest in what happens to that uh, issue or to to that spacecraft and the the companies. You know, there's there's no mechanism at least currently for the companies to go out and say, hey, I'm just going to go out and clean this up. I'm not going to go to each of these different states or figure out where, where this debris came from and uh, ask that state whether I can clean up that piece. Sir, do you have any idea how many uh, satellites uh, are actually orbiting Earth at this point? Well, it's, it's a couple thousand. SpaceX, though, it, it would take me a second to, to look it up. SpaceX is, is, is putting up their mega constellation. OneWeb wants to put up a mega constellation also so the the couple thousand now is going to turn into 10 or or 15,000 here soon and then we'll see from there i think spacex is putting up 60 satellites at a time right now and they've launched four i think there have been four launches as of today in in mid-march so they will have thousands and thousands of satellites it's just proliferating like crazy right now so I'm I'm assuming that's going to lead to some high congestion in space. Yeah, and that and that's that's another issue. So um, it, it will lead to high congestion. Right now, there's still uh, enough space to to continue to put up these satellites. But as we go through and um, as it becomes increasingly more congested and and contested, the question is, especially from a DoD standpoint, is how are we going to defend our national security space infrastructure when these these companies are, are putting up hundreds or thousands of satellites uh, in the same orbital regimes that we might want to use or um, there, there, there are so many satellites and there are so many new I guess capabilities out there that it, anything that, that goes up could be used also as a weapon, which is what we we really kind of get at. So if any satellite can ram another satellite, if if it has the fuel and if it has the uh, if it, if it's close enough to that satellite, so we're uh, that's something we're dealing with uh, on a day to day basis. So kind of transitioning a little bit, sir. You're currently the chief of space law, U.S. Space Command, and U.S. Space Force. What is the distinction between those those two organizations? Oh yeah, that's that's a great question. So so um, the way the U.S. is the Department of Defense is organized, you have the the services whose jobs are organized, train, and equip. So they kind of present uh, forces and capabilities to combatant commanders. So the service aspect is the United States Space Force. If you think of the U.S. Army and the, and the U.S. Navy, they, they also organize, train, and equip to present forces and capabilities to combatant commanders. Now, the combatant commander is the commander of United States Space Command, which is the, the combatant command. It's the, the newest uh, combatant command. It was stood up in August of 2019. And and the combatant command is is really the the war fighting command. So it's it's the for to use an air force term, it's kind of the difference between UCOM and USAFE. 
European Command and United States Air Forces in Europe. So United States Space Command is the combatant command and the United States Space Force is the, the service that presents the capabilities to the combatant command. Obviously, a lot of our listeners are very interested in the U.S. Space Force, and I think this is kind of maybe a natural segue to discuss that. It's my understanding that in December of 2019, uh, General John W. Raymond assumed the duties as the first chief of the Space Force. So it's it's been around for a few months right now. What's the current comp- composition of the U.S. Space Force? And also, could, what could you speak about um, the new U.S. Space Force? General Raymond, is, he's actually both the, the U.S. Spacecom combatant commander and the chief of space operations for the uh, U.S. Space Force. He is um, – or, or the, the U.S. Space Force is that new service that, that was um, stood up pursuant to the National Defense Authorization Act uh, in, in December. Right now, there's almost like two U.S. Space Forces. So there's the U.S. The, – the service level U.S. Space Force – which will take over the space capabilities. But then there's also the U.S. Space Force that that I work for, which is kind of an Air Force MAGCOM equivalent that's called the U.S. Space Force. So it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing. But eventually, all, all of those space capabilities and space operators and space operations will transition from that Air Force, MAGCOM-like U.S. Space Force into the service U.S. Space Force that General Raymond is the chief of space operations for. And at that point, there will just be the service U.S. Space Force, and there won't be this this MAGCOM-like. And that service is similar to the U.S. Marine Corps in that it it's – so the U.S. Marine Corps is under the Department of the Navy. The United States Space Force will be and is under the Department of the Air Force. How do you think this this new um, service would be uh, received by the international community? I, I think for those states, so so when the the U.S. Space Force was first announced and lauded uh, by President Trump, and it's been a couple of years ago now, uh, certain states came out. Uh, Russia came out and said, "Oh, you know, this is the United States militarizing space." And this is this is counter. If if they continue to run counter to the Outer Space Treaty, we will act in kind. There are a couple of articles uh, about that. But if you understand the way the U.S. military is organized, this isn't substantially different. Um, there, there, it's an organized, train and equip model, and and so so the U.S. Space Force is is going to continue to organize train and equip uh, its troops to present to the the various combatant commands and, and primarily to the United States Space Command the which which would be the space combatant command or the combatant command with uh, the area of responsibility over space how does the US if you if you could also upon on this how does the US, US justify the space force creation when you have um, an outer space treaty that that is more or less a non-armament treaty yeah, so I would I would disagree with the premise that it's a non-armament treaty. In the, in the preamble to the Outer Space Treaty, it says space um, shall be used for for peaceful purposes. That that a that's not in the binding clauses, the actual articles of the treaty, and b uh, unclosed United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea also 
says that the sea will be used for uh, international waters will be used uh, for peaceful purposes. And the way the United States and really every every other uh, state that's that's a major player looks at that is peaceful purposes means non-aggressive. So you can take any uh, type of self-defense action similar to what we have in international waters with with our, our our U.S. Navy. You can take the same types of actions in space and uh, be in compliance with all of the international treaties, prim- primarily all the space treaties and the U.N. Charter. With with that in mind, what um, I know one of the other topics we were going to talk about was kind of the quote unquote law of war in the space domain. So what actually is that? The law of war in the space domain is, is really just the law of war. The law of war applies in all domains. And what, what the law of war is, is, hey, you can't, you can't threaten or use force against another state in any domain. And you have the right to use force in self-defense in, in any domain. While there are certain kind of physical differences about the space domain and there are certain capability differences in the space domain that the analysis is substantially the same is, Hey, has this other state has, has this adversarial state committed an armed attack against us uh, or against the United States? And if the United States says, yes, they have, well, then we have the right to use force in self-defense and we can use force in self-defense in any of the domains. So, you, you look at it and you say, okay, is this a use of force or is this an armed attack in the space domain? You say, is this a use of force or is this an armed attack against our state? And you include everything. You include, hey, this is what this adversarial state is doing on the ground. This is what they're doing in the sea. This is what they're doing in the air. And this is what they're doing in space. And this is what our current political military relationship is with that state. And you take all of those factors into and you put them in context and you say okay given all of these do we consider this a use of force against us and if the answer is yes then we the united states will reserve the right to use force in self-defense to to any use of force and we can use force in self-defense in any any of those domains so uh the the law of war is the law of war is the law of war and it's if, if you try to like parse it out by domain, you're going to be unnecessarily limiting your state's actions. So as long as you can say, okay, this is an illegal use of force or this is an illegal armed attack against our state, uh, there's, there's a nuance there. I, I don't know if you want me to discuss, but as long as you can say that, then you reserve the right to use force and self-defense in, in all domains. So in other words, the law of war, we should view that really not any differently or, or similarly than we do to the other domains. Exactly. Right. It, it's we're, we're applying the UN charter and we're including the space domain in that application. So if uh, an adversary state has amassed a bunch of troops on our border and um, they've got some ships out, uh, uh, some aircraft carriers out just outside of uh, our territorial waters. And now they're, they're holding a satellite a, a national security satellite hostage in in the space domain. You're going to consider all of those factors and say, "Hey, is this an imminent uh, use of force or an imminent armed attack?" And if it is, you we reserve the right to use force in self-defense. 
And sir, with the advance in technology, as, as we discussed um, earlier, uh, and a lot of uh, other states across the world that have now, they have their own space programs, they're getting much much more sophisticated. There's many other state actors that are involved in the, in the space domain. Do we need to take a new and fresh approach to the current legal regime? You know, that's that's a, that's a hard question. And, and, and the, the reason it's it's so challenging is that it's it's not just in the space domain, is, is that states are unwilling to unnecessarily bind their actions so so that we're not getting uh, multilateral international treaties in, in any domain these days. You'll, you'll see a bunch of what uh, some academics will term soft law, like United Nations General Assembly resolutions or certain uh, non-binding agreements. But you might see some additional bilateral agreements or coalition agreements, but I don't think we will see uh, any, any anything like the original four treaties. Any, any, I don't think we'll see anything new like that uh, in my lifetime. And if you could, sir, why do you think that that's the case? Well, I think states have have become more or, or more reticent to sign away any kind of flexible options in in the future in in again in in all domains so so that you know when space was new and they didn't know exactly how it was going to play out and they wanted to make sure that everybody was going to play by a certain uh limited set of rules it was a little bit easier for for these states to get together and say okay this is what we're going to do and in in any treaty or in any international agreement you're you're giving something up right you're going to say hey I, I won't do X to ensure that you also don't do X. And as as space plays out, we're not at a level where all all the states are going to agree that hey, I'm willing to give up whatever whatever that is in order to uh, ensure that you also won't do it. So would it be fair to more or less summarize that states deliberately want laws to you know more or less remain a little unclear or ambiguous for their own national interests? Uh, maybe maybe much like we see in the cyber domain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in international law, there has long been a practice of intentional ambiguity, where states are 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 looking to maybe sign on to something to say that they're a member of this treaty, but they they don't want to unnecessarily bind their actions unless they have to, and that's really uh, what we're seeing now. I mean. Internationally, that's what we're seeing now, but specifically in the space domain also, we're seeing that. What are some of the biggest challenges you think we're going to face in, in the near term, maybe in the next five to 10 years in the space domain? I, I think the, the challenges are establishment of operational norms. So I, I don't mean legal norms. I just mean operational norms. Whereas if you're in, if you're in international airspace there, there are, or in international waters, there are a series of norms that other states and, and the United States will follow so, so that you know, hey, this is what the intent of the other state is. Um, so that if, say, if they get within, in, in the uh, international airspace, if they get within 20 nautical miles, X happens. If they get within 10 nautical, nautical miles, Y happens. But but all the states know know what that is, and they know if they're going to break it, they know what kind of the potential repercussions are. 
And we don't have anything like that in space. Uh, you, you may have seen there was an article in Time, uh, that uh, an interview with General Raymond, where he mentioned uh, this Russian spacecraft that is following, that appears to be following a, a United States spy satellite. Well, we, we, do, we just don't have the norms to say, okay, this is okay, but this isn't. And if if you cross that line, these are the potential response actions that we have. We just don't have that at this at this stage. So as those norms get fleshed out and they're, they're being worked diligently at, at much higher levels than where I'm at, the, as they get fleshed out and we, we learn more about, hey, these are what the capabilities are of these other states and this distance is okay in this orbital regime and this distance is okay in that orbital regime – I, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge going forward. How will those norms likely be be played out? Will that be done from state to state, or will you see bodies of states getting together to to come to compromises on this? Uh, I th- I think it'll be bodies of states. CSPO, the Combined Space Policy Organization. There are a couple of international manuals on the mostly on the academic side, not not at the state level. Uh, on the military use of space that are that are pending, one is called uh, Milamos, which is the Manual of International Law on the Military Use of Space. The other one is called uh, Woomera, and so the the Woomera Manual. Both of those will be published within the next couple of years, uh, and and those are kind of these uh, coalition efforts. So uh, I th- I think we'll need, and, and then of course UN uh, Copios the. Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Space, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Space, um, will continue to work together to at least get non-binding guidelines put out there as we go forward. What excites you about space today and going into the future, sir? Leveraging this this amazing commercial revolution of these new companies that that are coming in, they're pouring billions of dollars into capabilities and and the DOD can have kind of tunnel vision where we continue to do things the same way. Well, now we've got these commercial partners out there that uh, are just revolutionizing the way we launch, the way we, what, what we can do from space, the, the capabilities that are out there. That's, that's gotta be just the most exciting thing. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in the next five years. Do you think we'll see man walking on Mars in our lifetime? I don't know. Uh, may, maybe 30 years time. It's hard to say when when the technology it continues to explode. It, it's it's a uh, it's kind of a, an exponential curve. I I, do, I just uh, I'm excited to see what happens. I just don't know what it'll be. I know Elon Musk has made some bold proclamations on SpaceX. So just wanted to hear what your thoughts were, yep, sir. Yep, yep. <laughs> So uh, kind of in summary, sir, are, are there any resources, whether, whether books, videos, podcasts, or anything else that you might want to recommend to our listeners where they can learn more about space law on today's topic? Sure. So the United Nations has a uh, website out there that lists all of the space treaties, uh, and, and that's that's a, a good starting point. And then there are a number of treatises or overviews of space law. Um, the, the two that I look at are, one is by a professor out at Nebraska, Franz Vonderdunk, who has a, a space law treatise. And then um, there's another one, Lyle and Larson, 
is another one that I usually go to when I want to kind of figure out, hey, this this is what it kind kind of where we're at. They're they're valuable in that you know you can read the entirety of of those four treaties of black letter space law in, in 45 minutes, but then you really want to know, okay, what have the states done since the the 1960s and 1970s so that they see what compliance with these treaties means? And, and then uh, there's we, – we didn't discuss it, but there's uh, quite a bit of national law also that governs space – uh, space law from say like if you're a United States company, it's it's United States domestic law. Um, so so th- th- those are all things that are kind of incorporated in those treatises. So those are the ones that I like to look at. Thank you, sir. And we'll make sure to put those in our show notes once this is um, published live and in on our website. With that, sir, any last uh, final parting tips, words, or a- any other um, thing you'd like to leave with our listeners on the topic of space law? No, I thank you so much for for having me on. I I really appreciate it. It's an exciting field and it's going to continue to grow through the the next couple of decades. So people are interested in it. I encourage them to uh, pursue getting into space law. Well, great, sir. Thank you so much again for your time today. Um, That'll be the, the end for our show today. Oh, great. Thank you much. Well, that concludes our interview with Lieutenant Colonel James Goodsman. Here are my top three takeaways from the interview. Number one, space technology is pushing the legal boundaries of the main governing space laws of the 1960s and 70s. Here's a quick historical snapshot on our technological advancement to emphasize this point. On October 4th, 1957, history changed when the then Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite into space, and the dawn of the space age. Within months, the U.S. successfully launched its own satellite, and a year later, NASA was born. And within 12 years of Sputnik 1, U.S. astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to walk on the moon on July 20, 1969. Since the late 1960s, humankind has continued to push the bounds of space exploration and discovery. We've successfully sent satellites into intergalactic space, explored planets in our solar system with remarkable precision, discovered and created numerous new technologies due to space exploration or tangentially related to it, such as GPS, LEDs, CAT scans, scratch-resistant lenses, water purification systems, wireless headsets, to the computer mouse and laptops, among other advancements. And according to multiple sources, there are over 2,000 satellites currently orbiting Earth and potentially thousands more in the coming years, where the United States and Russia aren't the only state players anymore, and private enterprise has become a huge factor in the 21st century. With that quick technological backdrop, the laws that govern space are still rooted in the 1960s and 70s. As discussed in the interview, the primary laws and conventions that govern space today include the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, the 1968 Rescue and Return Agreement, the 1972 Liability Convention, the 1975 Registration Convention, which was the last main binding convention or treaty that the U.S. signed, and the 1979 Moon Treaty, which the U.S. is not a part of. These main laws have set the space legal framework for decades, along with other international and national laws and regulations. While these laws have more or less provided a sound legal framework for the space domain, 
they could not possibly have anticipated all the new technological developments over the last 50 years. Many of these laws remain largely ambiguous in many areas of space, which can cause uncertainty and conflict in the interpretation of them among state actors. As we sit in 2020, with the continued advancement of space technology, it seems to me that we may want to reevaluate these governing laws to ensure they are primed for our future in space. Number two, private enterprise continues to become a bigger player in the space domain. As Lieutenant Colonel Gutzman mentioned, commercial partners are revolutionizing the way we quote-unquote do space. From the way we launch, to communication systems, travel, and the very operation in space itself. Private enterprise has taken a controlling lead in many areas of space through companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and OneWeb. For example, SpaceX and OneWeb both want to put up mega constellations. SpaceX is putting up 60 satellites at a time, and there have been multiple launches so far. This will lead to higher congestion in space, which will pose new challenges. For example, how will states defend their national security space infrastructure when private companies are filling out the orbital space regimes above Earth? Plus, anything that goes up into space could potentially be used as a weapon, as Lieutenant Colonel Gutzman mentioned. How will this play out in space norms? Further, corporate mergers and acquisitions have also led to legal dilemmas. For example, Digiglobe was the commercial exquisite private company and it had all its licenses in the U.S. Then, MDA, a Canadian company, bought Digiglobe to the tune of $2.4 billion. From a legal perspective, who becomes responsible for this new company's space assets? If you recall, under the current legal space framework, each country is responsible for private enterprises from its own country. MDA set up a new company and incorporated in Delaware called Maxar Technologies, in an attempt to separate U.S. companies and Canadian companies under each of their respective state regime's legal authorities. If this sounds a little confusing, that's the point. Private enterprise, with its mergers, acquisitions, and other unique attributes, has made the space domain even more complicated. Number three, international space norms remain the number one challenge in space. Lieutenant Colonel Gutzman mentioned that the number one challenge in the space domain is in establishing norms. This point essentially ties into the previous two points. And these are not just the legal norms, but operational norms as well. Further, Lieutenant Colonel Gutzman mentioned that many states have deliberately treated the space domain in an ambiguous manner. They're more or less afraid of effectuating change that could negatively impact their own space interests and or national security concerns. Fair enough there. However, leaving much of the law in a state of ambiguity is likely not the best long-term solution. As space becomes more congested, private enterprise becomes even more vested, and more conflicts arise, the laws will need to be updated. In summary, we've come a very long way indeed from Sputnik 1's first orbit of Earth in October of 1957. And more recently, on December 20th of 2019, the U.S. created the world's first space force. How other countries react to this step remains to be determined. Where will we be in 10, 20, 50, or 100 years from now is anyone's guess. 
Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, has boldly proclaimed that man will walk on Mars in our lifetime and perhaps colonize it in the next 100 years. If this turns out to be even remotely true, which many believe it will be, we owe it to ourselves and future generations to take a clean and fresh look at the space law regime in context with our technological advancements. Thank you for listening to another episode. If you like this episode, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes along with others at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.